Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 1, we'll read a little bit past our passage, just for context, so we can pick it right up next week. Hear the Word of God to you this morning. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Now we just read earlier, it's important to get this, to put the words we're going to be looking at in context, so it's not just a topical sermon on faith, hope, love. We need to understand what was going on here in Thessalonica with this new young brand new church so we just read earlier in the, in the service how the Apostle Paul and his co-workers um, Silas and the Latin word, uh, name for him is Sylvanius um, and also Timothy his young protege these three missionaries um, went to this Greek city of Thessalonica it was in ancient Europe during the time and this city was it was a great um, strategic place to plant a, a city um, kind of like let's think about Philly it's got a port it's got you know it's, it's right in the center of things something like that um, and what Paul did as was his custom he went first to the Jewish synagogue where the folks knew the Old Testament scriptures and obviously first to the Jew then to the Gentile that's how the gospel goes and he went and he argued three successive Sabbath days and he argued from the scripture Two things that he proved to them that the Christ had to suffer and that he had to rise from the dead as you may recall in, in uh, the during those days the Jews looked for the Messiah but they focused more on the second coming texts in the Old Testament that he was going to come and clean house and so what Paul proved from the Old Testament I would imagine if, I'd love to be a fly on the wall during those sermons but I would imagine he took Isaiah 53, which talked about the suffering servant and how he took our place. And I'm sure he went to other Old Testament passages to prove that the Christ had to suffer and that he had to rise from the dead. And then, of course, the second main point he had to uh, explain to them is that this Jesus, the historical Jesus that was just crucified maybe 20 years before this church plant, if that, the one that rose from the dead, he is the Christ. That's his powerful message for three Sabbaths in a row. Now, we know that his preaching was, an, was accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? Quote, unquote, from um, Acts 17, we read this. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. That's a miracle. Not one, not two, but a big group as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. That's pretty powerful when you get the prominent. And, and I do want to say, 
it's interesting how women often responded, sometimes even in more numbers than men did. I think that's interesting. So it was a great day indeed for the growing and the building of the church of Jesus Christ. It's very exciting. But with that blessing, that great excitement, that great joy, um, also came great persecution and challenge. Um, the devil doesn't like when a big group gets pulled out of his lap and goes into the lap of God. That's not something that makes him very happy. And so as we just read earlier, the unbelieving Jews, a big crowd, became jealous. And quote unquote, they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. <laughs> they were like, okay, we got to stir something up here because this is not good. And to make a long story short, this is where it gets interesting. They had to wait till nightfall so that Paul and Silas could slip out of the city. And what that means is normally what happens when the church gets persecuted, who do they go for first? They go for the leaders, the troublemakers, the ones who are spreading the gospel, the head as it were. And so he, had, he and Silas had to slip out. So they slip out, they go to Berea, and what does Paul do? He goes into hiding, right? No, he goes to the synagogue in Berea. It does the same thing. And, of course, the Bereans were a more noble character because they said they checked up on Paul. They said, oh, you're preaching that Jesus is the Christ and then you must suffer and rise. We're going to look it up. And they did. And we found out there there was a big group that ended up coming to know Jesus through Paul's powerful preaching. But then, guess what? History repeats itself. Nighttime comes. And this time, Silas and Timothy hang out, but they got to get Paul out. Because that's, listen to this, the same crew that chased them out of Thessalonica, followed them to Berea. <laughs> That's how bent they were. And they stirred up trouble for Paul there. So Paul had to leave Berea as well. And then he went to the shore. Some We can relate to that. And then from there he went to Athens when he was kind of by himself for a while for safety reasons. So here we have, uh, the, now this is why I'm telling you the story. I'm giving you the context. You have a young Brand new babies in Christ. Brand, they were just newly born again. Um, Paul might have stayed with them a month, not too much longer than that at the most. And now what? They're bereft of their leaders. Here they are by themselves, no missionaries, no leaders, a bunch of baby Christians. In the midst, listen, in the midst of pagan, unbelieving pagan culture and an unbelieving Jewish culture. And they were getting it from both sides. So this, they had lots of pressure on them. And so, of course, you could, you, can, you could just imagine the kind of pressure there would be for them to either, those who were Jewish believers, to return back to the safety of the synagogue, where they had some protection, or whether they were Greeks, where, where, where they would not have to face the stigma of following um, a crucified, risen Savior. And so they had that pressure, and they were in the midst of great persecution. And so you, you could see Paul being separated from his children in the faith. You can imagine that Paul was a bit anxious. Like, man, I wonder how, they, 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 how they're doing. Are they still standing strong? Are they still walking with Christ? Are they growing in Christ? It'd be like right away when we first started planting this church, if Pete and Dave and I all had to leave, and you had to fend for yourselves. And you can imagine... If months and months go by and I'm not hearing about you, it would trouble me greatly. And so Paul was greatly troubled. And so 
Paul sent Timothy to, to bring back word, and he found out some great words that they were fighting the good fight in the midst of the struggle. But what Paul did do, since he couldn't go in person, is he wrote this, 1 Thessalonians. And this was an encouragement to them, because you can imagine they would start to wonder, hey, Paul's not here, Silas isn't here, these other folks are criticizing us, saying that we're not really the people of God. Are we really on the right track? And so Paul writes this epistle to give them great encouragement that, A, yes, you're the real thing. If I entitled this sermon, A True Church. And B, keep on keeping on the way you're going. You're on the right track. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Somebody comes to assess your church and they say, awesome, just keep going. Exactly what you're doing. That's what happened. The, the, the Holy Spirit did such a work among these folks. It was a genuine work. Now listen, then we'll jump in the text and it won't be um, that long uh, this morning. But there's one thing I think that we need to see as we look at these first few verses. What makes a church a true church, a genuine church? You know, what, what kind of church should we look to in order to model ourselves after, right? Because we don't want to reinvent the wheel. And I find that as a church planner over the years, what I see other church planners do and even other churches, they compare with other churches, they always look for the most cutting edge church. They look for it and they say, well, what are they doing? Maybe we just copy what they're doing, then we'll explode, right? Well, instead of looking at the, most, the newest thing or the most innovative, I think it's a much safer bet to look, take a detailed look at the church the Apostle Paul himself said, this is the model. So we could know for a fact, God says, follow what this church does. See their example? That's what I want you to imitate. Because listen, think, think about it this way, all right? What do we often see as a distinguishing mark of that the Holy Spirit is moving? And we use that phrase a lot, oh, the Spirit's moving, the Spirit's moving. A lot of people, when they have a charismatic leader that slaps you on the head and all of a sudden you pass out and fall on the ground and start going like this, oh, the Spirit's among us. Other people, they expect to see miraculous gifts. If there's healing, if there's speaking in other languages, then we know the Spirit's here. Other people, if the church is huge, we know the Spirit's here. Hey, I'm not picking on big churches. Other people, oh, if the church is small, we know it's a real church, that they're staying true to true doctrine. There's always excuses, right? What we're going to look at this morning is we're going to see three distinguishing marks to show that a church is true. It doesn't have to do with any of those things. Those things are neither here nor there. There's... Spirit-filled big churches, there's spirit-filled small churches. There's spirit-filled churches that have a full band, and there's spirit-filled churches that sing with an organ in, it and, and hymns. Yes, there is, believe it or not, there is. It doesn't go by how much money you have. There's poor churches, and there's better, well, more well-to-do churches. Instead, what we're going to see is that this. The Apostle Paul and his fellow missionaries give thanks for these three things. Surprise, surprise. Faith, hope, and love that's demonstrated by an exemplary congregation of Christ. That's what Paul's going to say. Those are the three things that Paul said, bingo. I know God is at work with you, in you. So as we look at this passage, we're only going to take the first 
three verses, even though the first four verses go together. But the fourth verse will get us into a whole nother sermon. So as we look at that, we're going to see that Paul deals with two things. He deals with the church of God in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then he deals with the gospel of God in churches in verses 4 and following. So this morning, it's going to be dealing more with the church of God. And this is what we're going to see. Number one, where the church lives. Interesting. Number two, what the church is characterized by in space and time. And those are the only thing we're going to have time for, the things we're going to have time for this morning. So let's take a look at the first one, where the church lives. Look at verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Now, why do I say where the church lives? For this very reason. First thing we need to see is that the church is a concrete community of people that meet in a particular place. Why do I say that? Well, you know people that say, I don't have to, be a, uh, uh, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. A, a Christian that's not in a church is an oxymoron. Let me tell you why. The church is characterized by a lot of things in the Bible. It's a body right? We're the branches. Jesus is the, is the vine. We can go to all the different analogies that we're the bride of Christ. But what does the word church actually mean here in this text? You know what the word is? Ecclesia. You know what that word translates into? Gathering, assembly. <laughs> we are an assembly of God's people. So Paul is writing to a particular church, an assembly of people. Now, of course, it's way more than just a Sunday morning worship service. But really, that just kicks the week off. It's the assembling. We are the church. And so I think it's so important, as, as I've shared the gospel with people throughout the years, how often, and even like relatives, and, well, I don't need to go, go to church to pray to God. Well, no, you don't. But if you truly know him as Lord and Savior, you're not going to isolate yourself. What does the Spirit do? He moves you to be with the rest of your brothers and sisters. He moves you to worship Him and give Him glory in public. He worships you to commit yourself to a local body where you can not only be loved, but love. We've seen this in many other places in the Scripture. Scriptures. That it's not right for us to rob the church even of the gifts that God has given us. So first of all, the church lives in the world. Kind of simple and obvious, but then again, not to everybody. But secondly, and this is the more exciting thing to me, notice what he says here. He says the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's to say we live, listen brothers and sisters, we live in two spheres. We live here on earth, we're citizens of Atlantic City or wherever we live. Right, the church that meets in Atlantic City, but we're also in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That means we live in union with Him, connected to Him, vitally part in union with Him, with the Father and with the Son. It's interesting because normally Paul talks about being in Christ, in Christ, in Jesus, right, throughout his epistles. But here he makes it clear in who? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't separate the two. Way back in the early church, already they saw the Father and Son as equal. Two persons, of course, with the Holy Spirit, three persons, in the one 
true God. This is what Jesus said, in case you think I'm going off. This is what Jesus said in John 17, verses 20 to 21, what, he's, what is called his high priestly prayer. He said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. In other words, through who believe in the, uh, through the apostles' message. So that's us. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now listen. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And what's awesome is what Jesus prayed is a reality today. The church is in God. When will I ever learn to live in God? Well, the Bible says we are in God if we're really his. So why is this so important? I personally believe that these young Christians needed to be assured that although their own countrymen persecuted them and treated them as second-class citizens and shamefully, we'll see that in chapter 2, verse 14 later, they were nevertheless, nevertheless, they need to see they were privileged and blessed to be in union with the Father and the Son. Listen, it's much more important to be connected to God, the Father, and Jesus than it is to go to a church that has pipe organ, that has the official blessing of the state, or whatever other thing we may value. It's a much greater value if we have to worship in a cave but still be in the Father and the Son, then that's where we need to worship. So where does the church live? Well, we can answer this way. It lives in A.C., Egg Harbor, Cape May, Philly, wherever. But it also lives in God the Father and in the Son and in close communion with him. We derive all our strength, all the grace from him. And so what does Paul do? He takes that, he speaks to that church a word of blessing. It's not a wish. That's too weak. And it's not even just a prayer. Notice what he says. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Grace what? Grace means unmerited favor. He's saying, you already have the blessing of God. I pray for more of it. I bless you with more of it. And you have peace with God the Father through his Son, the shed blood of Jesus. I pray for peace to be among you. I bless you. He opens up all his epistles like that. That was the common greeting during the time, and he Christianized it. Nothing wrong with that. That's the first thing. And the second point I want to make, and last point for this morning, not only where the church is, but what the church is characterized by in space and time. He says this, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what's interesting. As he thinks of them in the presence of God, as he and the other missionaries think of them in the presence of God, what do they remember about them and what report did they hear about them specifically? And what, what he thanks God for is the three graces that we find throughout the epistles. This is one of the first places we find it. The triad of Christian graces that if you're a true believer, you have. And we just heard them. Faith, hope, and love. Paul says, when I look at you guys, I see that. I see faith, hope, and love, and I thank God. Notice, he thanks God for it. 
Now, here's the question. How in the world do you know that someone has faith, hope, and love? Can I look at Nikki right now and say, oh, I can see her faith. Oh, look at Allison. I see her hope. Can't see it, can we? This is how Paul saw it. They all produce actions. How did, how did Paul know there was faith there? Because there was work. He saw their faith in action. How did he know they had love? Because they were laboring strenuously for others, for the sake of the kingdom. How did he know they had hope in the second coming of Jesus? They endured the persecution. They endured the pain. They endured the rain. Because they knew Jesus is coming back. There is an end to all this. No matter how it ends up on this side of glory. He will come back and take us home. And there will be a new city coming out of heaven. That's what our name is all about. It's all a prophecy. We're not the new city yet. It's coming. We need to get this right out of... We need to get this point right out of the gate. Paul's not praising them in order to puff them up with pride, right? He's not saying, oh, you guys are so awesome. You're so holy. I want you to feel really good about yourselves. No, he's praising God because he sees clear evidence of the grace of God at work in their midst. He's saying, I see God's handiwork. So here's the issue. How do you know a church has been blessed by God's grace? It's not that they drive Mercedes. It's not that they're, biggest, that they're, they're the biggest church on the block or have the biggest budget. None of those things prove anything. It's that what we see is a demonstration of faith, hope, and love. Just think about it this way. When, when you see faith, hope, and love, then you know you're a blessed church. That's a blessed church. That's a church that has God's approval. That's a church where the Holy Spirit has been at work. Listen, you falling down on the ground and, and, and doing all kinds of gyrations doesn't do anything for the kingdom. You with me? But you showing your faith by serving and doing good works, that does something. That shows the Spirit's at work. So let's take a look at each of these briefly, real quick. Work of faith, he says. And in the actual Greek, it just says work of faith. Um, now listen, their faith was in a particular object. Obviously, you'll see it in verse 10. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's where the, that was the object of their faith. Was it some general faith in general God, G-O-D, with any content you want to throw in that? You following me? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who what? Rescues us from the coming wrath. So they didn't have some kind of vague faith or general, general faith. They had a faith in Christ. But what's, what Paul specifically thanks God for is the visible expression of their faith, which is work. See, here's the test of the reality of whether you have faith or not. Does it work? Right? The proof of the puddings and the eating. So we see Paul and James aren't at odds at all, after all. You want to show me your faith? Serve. We are certainly 100% saved by faith alone, but as the reformer said, it's a faith that's never alone. 
A faith that is alone is not a saving faith. No, the faith that connects us to Jesus unto the saving of our soul also pours forth in good works. It can't help but do that. It's a spiritual force to be reckoned with. Now look, let me put it to you this way. Faith, think about it this way. Faith can't be seen, but its effects sure can. Think about that. Faith can't be seen, but its effects can be. You could put an ancient Celtic cross on the top of your church building and accompany your public worship with candles. Or you can have a worship service in a gymnasium under the shadow of drums, guitars, and keyboards. And none of that really makes a difference either way. What shows the reality of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is a faith that works. Ulrich Zwingli, he's a reformer you don't hear me quote a lot from, but he was in Switzerland. He put it this way. Our confidence in Christ does not make us lazy, negligent, or careless. But on the contrary, it awakens us, it urges us on, and makes us active in living righteous lives and doing good. There is no self-confidence to compare with this. Because you've got to understand, that's what they tried to criticize the reformers in uh, the Reformation days. and said, oh, if we're saved by faith alone, then we won't work. And he was like, on the contrary. It's only if we really have a real faith in Christ that we'll go out and do what he says to his glory. Second thing, labor of love. Throughout 1 Thessalonians, it's going to be a constant theme, how he sees their love one for another, and he commends them. He notes their love of God for God. He notes their love for those who brought the gospel to them later on the epistle. He, he notes their love one for another. But notice here, he stresses how he knows this is, once again, their concrete actions. So what I did was I looked at the Greek to see if the word for work in Greek was different than when it says the work of faith and the labor of love. Are they two different Greek words? And surprise, surprise, they are different. And the word for um, labor here is kopos. And listen, it, it carries the idea of laborious toil involving weariness and fatigue. In other words, the Thessalonians demonstrated the kind of love that goes beyond the call of duty. You say, I know God's at work with you because you're falling all over each other to serve one another. You're falling all over each other to honor one another above yourselves. That's not normal. You realize that, right? That's not normal. That people look out for others. That people put God's interests first. That's, that's not normal. So John Calvin says this. It is known by experience how laborious love is. Can I get an amen? The church was marvelously pressed down by a great multitude of afflictions. Many were stripped of their wealth. Many were fugitives from their country. Many were thrown destitute of counsel. Many were tender and weak. The condition of almost all was involved. So many cases of distress, listen, did not allow love to be inactive. What Calvin is pointing out is this was a church that was going through it. And even though they were going through it, their love shone like a beacon. And that's the second evidence of genuine Christianity of the real deal they talk about this culture our younger culture is looking for reality we're looking for what's real this is you can't get realer than this 
Love is real. At least agape love. This is what the missionaries saw when they looked at the church in Thessalonica and they gave praise to God for it. There's one more thing they mentioned. And that's endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, what is going to keep you keeping on when you face struggle after struggle, persecution after persecution, trouble after trouble, trial after trial, when it rains, it pours, can I get a witness? What's going to keep you going? What kept them going? Because when we talk persecution, we're not talking, oh, you're not allowed to pray in school. We're talking your life's on the line. And every day you wake up wondering what's going to happen, that gets hard. What kept them going was simply this. They had a hope that endured. They had a hope that was a living hope. They knew that the Lord Jesus who saved their souls someday was going to come and take them bodily to the new heavens and a new earth where there's no more sin. There's no more shootings in the city. There's no more struggling with our children to do the right thing. There's no more going to funerals over young people's bodies. But it's the home of righteousness. And it is coming. Just as sure as he came the first time, which proved he keeps his promises. You know, I love there's an old Petra song that says, Joy is not in where we've been, but joy is waiting in the end, at the end. Brothers and sisters, that's the end of the road for us is a good thing. If we know Christ and we're walking with him and we endure the mess of this world by faith, love, and hope, that's what's waiting, Jesus. <laughs> Nothing better than that. Nothing. The world, it's going to, when we look at what, all the other stuff that used to like charm us in this life, and then we look at, we're going to go, oh, I can't believe it. I cannot believe that it even tempted me for a minute. There was a school system in a large city, and they had this program to help children keep up with uh, their schoolwork when they stayed in the city hospital. And one day, a teacher who, who volunteered got this phone call that there was a child who needed, um, needed some help and so she called the child's regular teacher and she said what are you working on in school right now so I can help him out oh we're working on nouns and verbs so the, the, the volunteer said okay well that's what I'll work um, with this child on and she goes into this boy's room and no one told her about the boy's condition he was severely burned so when she walked in she kind of gasped and it was you know it was very unsettling to see this boy and he was racked in pain and so but she she taught him the lessons on, on uh, nouns and verbs and when she left she felt like well I don't feel like I really did much I didn't accomplish too much and then when she next time she went in to do some volunteering the nurse grabbed her and said what did you do to that boy and she thought oh man what I do wrong and the nurse says no 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 you don't understand his whole attitude has changed now he, he he's, he's responding to our treatment He's trying to get better. He has a positive, upbeat um, attitude. And now we're not worried about him. His whole attitude's changed. He's fighting back. And then two weeks later, the boy explained what the change was. And this is what he said. I love this. He said, they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? 
In other words, if I'm dying, they're going to send somebody in here with nouns and, and verbs. Well, with us, it's a very similar thing. When there's no hope, the fight is over. Who wants to fight when there's no hope? Takes it out of you, doesn't it? The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's anything we have, it's hope. And it's not the, see, we, we, the English word hope is stinking weak. Excuse me, my language. But it is weak. What do we say? I hope she comes over tonight. Oh, I hope I don't burn the dinner. That's not what this kind of hope. This is a sure thing. It's an anchor that goes past the veil, right into heaven, into the throne. It's secure. It's a sure hope. It's the kind of hope that says, I don't know how the wash is going to come out on this side of glory. You know, even if I'm pan-millennial, I know it's all going to come out in the end. You know, I'm millennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial. I don't know exactly all the workings of what's going to happen right before Jesus comes. But I do know this. He's coming. And it gets me up in the morning. And it helps me preach when there's two people here. And it helps me preach if there's 70 people here. Paul thanked God when he remembered their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus. Now listen, I'm going to close with this, but we're going to pick it right up next time, hit the ground running. It's going to get way more, even more exciting as we go deeper into this epistle. David Jackman says this, if we wanted to sum up the thrust of verse 3, it would be this, real faith works, real love labors, real hope perseveres and because all these things are seen in your life then there is every evidence that you are real Christians praise God and I want to say go a step further than what he says not only are we real Christians but if we possess those three things which I see here by the way I'm encouraged with what I see in you but here's the bigger takeaway as he says in another epistle outright God will carry on to completion the work he began in you. And that's what he's telling Thessalonians. God has started a work, and God's going to finish that work. He doesn't even need me, the Apostle Paul says, as it were. The Spirit is the one who created this church. The gospel, he used the gospel to create this church, and now this church, as we're going to see next time, spreads the gospel. So think about that. The gospel creates the church, the church spreads the gospel. And it goes, let me go around in circles. It's the most beautiful circle I've ever seen in my life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that blessed circle. That your spirit and your word, the good news of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, creates the church on earth. The ones you have chosen before eternity are gathered in. Become a part of your holy people. And then we as your holy people send the gospel out, Lord can't help but break out from us as we proclaim the good news and you spread and build your church throughout the earth. Lord, continue to work here in this church plant, New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. Father, we pray for all true churches in the city here. We pray that you would bless them and help them become more and more biblical and more and more godly and continue to spread your true message. And Lord, we just commit it to you for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.